Good afternoon, and welcome to Diabolical Evil Schemes Don't Matter. Now, before we begin today's oral intercourse, I must caution you, the spoilers within are really very sinister and detail some quite horrific events. Dreadful. Oh, shit, actually. Change it. <laughs> <laughs> it was better in my head. <laughs> No, definitely keep it, yeah. What was it, Michael Caine, yeah? (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) This is the role he was born to play, baby. Let's not start criticising each other's Hitchcock impressions just yet. (laughs) We all go a little mad sometimes. Haven't you? This is Diabolical, the comedy podcast where four long-suffering friends dissect films most dastardly schemes, then try to improve them. I'm your host, Gaz, and this week's movie is Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. So, Peril Pals, keep an eye on that car and make sure it sinks into the lake fully. And for the four in attendance, and the trillions listening at home. Let's get diabolical! Hello, and welcome to this week's pod, on which I am joined by the panel of peril, who will compete at the show's close to see who can improve the villainous pun of the week the best to win points for our season three leaderboard in the show's competitive round. But first, if the panel could introduce yourselves and tell us who your favourite movie serial killer is, please. Let's begin with Ben. Hello, my name is Ben, and my favourite movie serial killer is Anton Sugar from No Country for Old Men. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, it's a good one. He hadn't even popped into my head. Yeah. yeah. He's not one that everybody would think of, and he is a chilling bastard. Yeah. yeah, petrol petrol station scene's my favourite in that. Yeah. Amazing. About the coin, how far it's travelled to get to where it is. <laughs> yeah, don't put it in with the other coins. Oh, it becomes a coin, which it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, is he a serial killer or is he more of an assassin? I mean, I guess he kills people he doesn't have to. Uh, yeah, that's what I got from it. I think, yeah. Well, you'll see my choice in a minute. <laughs> it links <laughs> quite nicely. And next, we shall have Countertacula, please. Hey, it's Craig here, and uh, no beating about the bush. My favourite movie serial killer is Dr. Hannibal Lecter, particularly in the, the film Ridley Scott's Hannibal, because it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Guts in or guts out, like Judas. I'll decide if you'll let me. (laughs) Excellent. I used to say in my teen hubris that I thought Brian Cox was the best Hannibal Lecter, but actually Anthony Hopkins, there's just something about his portrayal. And obviously um, Mads Mikkelsen as well. Mm. I can't can't speak to Gaspar Duliel. I've never been able to get through Hannibal Rising. Never tried. Not not overly inclined myself. I read the book and that was enough for me. Yeah. The book is shit, and the film will be condensed shit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I think they use some, they incorporate some elements of Hannibal Rising into the Hannibal TV series third season, yeah. 
uh, which were, were really good. The Japanese step is she mm. his stepmother or something like that? I think she's his sister. Sister. Mm. Yeah. And the fact that he killed a load of Nazis. Don't they become lovers though with the bell bugs? They might do. Not in Hannibal because it's only interested in homosexual love between Hannibal and Will. Doesn't want to mm. know about well, any I'm of the ladies. Watch this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he likes uh, sticking his knife into his guts, of course. Yes. So, uh, quite the metaphor there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He likes other serial killers and he doesn't like rude people. <laughs> Even though murdering people in absolutely heinous ways is quite rude in itself. Could be considered a social faux pas, yeah. You know, oh, but you got to see the meals he makes of them. They're quite exquisite. <laughs> you see him like putting peppercorns in Eddie Izzard's leg and stuff. <laughs> Welcome to Diabolical. <laughs> <laughs> Comic podcast where we spoil Hannibal, the TV show. <laughs> okay, let's hear, hear what Adam has to say for himself. Well, hello there, Adam here. And uh, my favourite movie serial killer is also linked in a similar way to Ben's pick, as he is a man motivated by both money and some sort of gratification from his killings. And that is the Iceman, Richard Kuklinski, here portrayed by Michael Shannon in the 2012 film. But he was a real mafia hitman. I would recommend watching the film and the documentaries on YouTube because they are terrifying. All right. Thoroughly unpleasant chap. Heard of it, but I've not seen it. Mm. Yeah, same. It sends a shiver down your spine, really. It's, it's incredible, this guy, talking about all these people he's killed. But then... Seeing it, put what he tells in the in the documentaries, put onto the screen, and it's like, oh my god! Mm. And all the while he's doing this, he's got a, a wife and two kids, and they don't know anything about it at all. Keeps it mm. secret for yeah. years and years and years and years. Incredible. Yes, I might track that one down and give it a, a damn good viewing. Yes. And my favorite movie serial killer is Patrick Bateman. Mm. I knew it. I called it. I got. It. Did you? Right yes. down here. Yeah, I knew yours would be Patrick Bateman. I knew I knew Catacular's would be uh, Hannibal. Be Hannibal. Cannibal. I had no idea what, what Turner's would be, and no. rightly so. I still don't know who Turner is. <laughs> I thought he was going to say like Darth Vader, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Gandalf, the white cat from Cats and Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> Psycho, based on Robert Block's book of the same name, was released in 1960 to a tepid critical reaction. This followed the established pattern of lacklustre reviews, followed by boffo box office that would be the status quo for Alfred Hitchcock until his critical re-evaluation by the Cahiers de Cinema, Francois Truffaut, Jean-Luc Godard, etc., later that decade. When Paramount Studios balked at Hitchcock's initial pitch for the film due to its lurid nature, he offered to film it on the cheap with the crew from his television series Alfred Hitchcock Presents, which was also rejected by the suits, claiming that the studio space was all fully booked up. Finally, only when proposing to self-finance the feature and waive his usual directing fee in favour of a 60% stake in the gross was Psycho Green lit. 
The controversial tale of unmarried daytime trysts, casual theft, and a sexually repressed slash cross-dressing murderer is an undisputed classic and kick-started the subgenre we now call the slasher movie. Its influence is felt in films such as John Carpenter's Halloween, Bob Clark's Black Christmas, and Brian De Palma's Raising Cain, and has been referenced endlessly in comedy, most notably the Simpsons spin on the shower scene where Maggie bashes Homer on the head as a can of red paint spills over the floor. But enough of that piss. What did everybody think of the film? (laughs) They also riff on Psycho, where... um... It's the X-Files episode of Simpsons where Homer is walking through the forest and he hears, and then it's just that orchestra getting off the bus as well. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Garth in Wayne's World when he's stabbing the little donut man. Making the, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the list could go on and on with What's that. What's the matter, Mr. Donut Man? I don't know. I don't feel so good. Oh, no. <laughs> Who would like to begin? Oh, well, oh, I had. Oh, 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 oh go oh. ahead. <laughs> well, uh, I haven't seen it for some time, but it's lost none of its power. Mm. I think it, it must be in the top. 50 movies of all time, I would have thought, easily still, you know, and 63 years old. It's still packing a punch. You could put it in a textbook of how to become a fabulous director, basically. Follow these simple, well, these not so simple steps, maybe. That's a name for a book. You know what I mean? Because there's so much in there and you just, for a filmmaker and for for a critic as well, I guess, or if you're looking at it through a more critical lens anyway, there's so much in there for everybody. You know, there's... There's the great performances, there's the lighting, the cinematography, the editing, the music. It's just endless and it's all tied up neatly as well, really well. I just loved it. And one of my notes was, it's a real masterclass and cinema owes a huge debt to Hitchcock. And Bernard Herrmann is painfully ignored, I think, Um, particularly at the time that motif I don't know if he if he managed to uh, lever any extra financial gains out of it, but it's been used over and over and over and over again, hasn't it? Mm. Next, let's have Ben. So this was the first time I've seen this film the no whole way. way through. Oh my god! And I'll tell you a little story about why. <laughs> I remember it being on around midnight one Halloween, and I think I was about thirteen or fourteen. And I kind of I pleaded with my parents to stay up and watch it. And then they finally gave in and said, yeah, go for it. I was waiting and waiting. I think it was on BBC Two. Finally came on. My eyes were all... Note to myself to get some spooky music on this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My eyes were already drooping. And it comes on. And I'm, and I'm watching it. And we get to the motel. And I, I'm, I'm sleepy. But it's not, nothing scary's happened yet. It's quite tense, but nothing scary's happened yet. And then the shower scene happens, and I just bolt to bed. Turn it on, <laughs> up the stairs. <laughs> Too rich for my blood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Because you don't see any gore. There's no real, you know, makeup or anything in there. It's horrifying, It's though. all yeah. th- done with cuts and sound. Yeah. Mm. It makes you feel like you're right there, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it was well after midnight. It was mm. well after midnight. Everyone else had gone to bed. It was uh yeah, it was scary. So I never got through it. Mm. But this time I managed to get through it 
and I had an absolutely great time with it. Mm. <laughs> it's a great film, probably among the best we've we've done, I'd say. Yeah. And recently we've been talking about films like Empire Strikes Back, Barry Lyndon, that you mm. could almost watch silent and still right. know exactly what's happening. And mm, this yeah. is another film mm-hmm. in that in that category. Yeah. It lets the camera do the bulk of the storytelling. I loved how ballsy it is. It makes you identify with Marion for so long, then kills her off, and then you're kind of floundering. And for, for one moment, you're identifying with Norman. You know, when the mm. car's sinking in the swamp and yeah. you think it's going to stop, you're like, oh, no. And then you realise, oh, why am I rooting for Norman? <laughs> so just Hitchcock, he just, he just plays you right the way through the film. Yeah. He has you exactly where he wants you, and I really enjoyed that. Yeah. The only thing I would change, I'd say, is the monologue at the end. It felt too mansplainy for me. Hmm. And I suspect if it were made again today, it might not be included. The therapist monologue or... Yeah, exactly. The therapist monologue. Okay. Yeah. And I thought, kind of after the film, as I was reflecting on it, it would have been really cool to have ended on the skeleton turning around in the chair and just hmm. uh, Marion's sister screaming and then let you let the audience fill in the blanks. But uh, yeah, overall, I'd, gi- I'd give it a you'd be a fool to miss it rating out of five. Oh, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Oh, he's very handsome. Spectacular. Would you also <laughs> give it something in the vein of you'd be a fool to miss it rating? Yeah, it's one of our greatest directors, greatest films. So Hitchcock, I don't appreciate it in his time, as you say, but I think few people nowadays would write him off and this is a brilliant example of a master at work as you say bringing this in under a million with his tv crew using black and white to make it cheaper but all his knowledge coming to the fore makes that all the richer because he uses shadows reflection brilliant framing and blocking as you say um the the master stroke of this is that you start very much from the point of view of Marion and and you follow her story for it must be a third of the, the whole runtime. And then they had that one scene with her and Norman having a, a dialogue where it it brings you more into his world than it has done with any character she's spoken to before. And you get a real sense of him through, you know, that room he's in the way he shifts in his chair, how close he is to her, how, how far away he is from her at different points when he's talking, how much of a presence mother is to him, and the different kinds of birds he's got in there. Some are birds of prey, some are you know, like more docile birds. And then, even though he's acted quite sinister in that scene, as you say, when, when you're kind of tricked into believing that he's shocked to find the body... You know, doesn't know mother's done it. Maybe, maybe he doesn't. You know, and and as you say, you uh, you're you there's a feeling of tension as the car's going in, and you suddenly realise that you have changed your your in to the film. You know, you're the yeah. character that you're following. That that's the masterstroke of it. Yeah, it's uh, a masterpiece. Yes, I I would echo everything you three chaps have said. In reference to uh, the the car sinking scene, uh, the homage that I referred to in the opening in in Brian De Palma's Raising Cain, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he does a lot of psycho homages in many films, but in Raising Cain, John Lithgow's character kills a woman, puts her in the back seat of a car, pushes it into a lake, and it doesn't sink. And it's John Lithgow hamming it up like crazy. The sun is rising, which is the tension for some reason. He's like looking back and forth between the car and the sun. It is so funny. Honest to God, it's one of the funniest things I've seen recently. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's absolutely standout scene. I think from the second it starts, it took me by surprise. The DVD started instantly that I watched. It didn't go to a menu mm. and Bernard Herman's score is just frantic instantly. It's this and you're like, Jesus Christ, we're off. Yeah. Which is quite at odds with where it starts, isn't it? Yeah. It does it for some quite calm scenes as well with Marion just sort of milling about as well at the start, I think. The the sort of crazy strings. Yeah. It's brilliant. And even the marketing for it at the time, because films back then, for any Power Pals listening who were unaware, they used to just run on a constant leap in the cinemas without a break. You'd have your newsreel, your cartoons, and the film just constantly running. And wherever you walked in was where you'd watch it from. And then you'd like stay in and go back to the start and watch, watch again. But Hitchcock's oh, really? rule for Psycho was you were not allowed in after the film starts, which was a first time kind of thing because he wanted to protect the twist at all costs mm. Mm. yeah so just uh a complicated man but but quite quite brilliant at his craft mm-hmm. and yeah i would probably agree i think it's probably my favorite of the films that we've done to date as well i'd forgotten wow. just how much i enjoyed it it's just it it absolutely batters through doesn't it you're not bored for a single second yeah, yeah no chance yeah it's a fantastic roller coaster ride of a film what's quite surprising is the way uh it's the acting throughout it's not none of it is mm. like oh you know by modern standards it's still held up quite well because we've seen some you know like uh we watched um, night of the hunter mm. and you think that's only five years previous to to psycho and the style yeah. of acting in that is completely different melodrama yeah mm. they're both classics in their own right mm. but Psycho is stood the t- test of time better. Yeah, Anthony Perkins more than anybody sets that tone. I think. Yeah, he's so good. Yeah, I think Janet Lee is is just uh, hypnotic as well in everything that she does, and she's better in her scenes with him, don't you think? Yeah, but I think she responds to his performance, and the scenes before that are all a bit not quite Night of the Hunter level, but a bit more towards the kind of. Golly shucks, Cary Grant. Yeah, in that direction, yeah. Whimsical stuff of the period. But once Anthony Perkins gets into it, it becomes more contemporary and his performance is very uh, subtle and nuanced. I thought she responded to that. I think she's much better in her scenes with him. I would say it's probably done on purpose as well. Yeah. Because of the way the film starts. Mm. Yeah, because in they're in the throes of passion to begin with, aren't they? And her the lover. Mm. And then it starts in that sort of way. And then it just gradually gets a bit, it cranks up the, the seriousness and the, the intensity as you go through because it's obviously what she's going to do when she takes the money home and stuff. And you're like, well, here we go. This is where it starts getting interesting straight away and you're less than 10 minutes into the film. That's one of your first amazing silent film visual cues mm. is when it cuts to her bed with the open money envelope and then to her suitcase. And nothing's said, but you know everything that's happening. 
just like yeah. visually, mm-hmm. it's brilliant. One of my favorite sequence, well, my favorite sequence we'll get into later is a section before she meets Auntie Perkins as Norman Bates. So I'll, I'll get into that Ooh. afterwards. Just a quick interesting note about the um, the bed scene with um, what's he called? The the fellow that Loomis. Sam, Sam Loomis. Loomis. Oh yeah, Sam Loomis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the film was subject to the, the Hayes Code of Hollywood, mm. and so. I think Hitchcock at the time pushed it as far as he could, having Janet Lee in her big pointy bra, pulling her tits as far apart as humanly possible, <laughs> snapping them off. Um, but the Hayes Code at the time said that um, at least one person had to have a foot on the floor. So if you notice, yeah. they've both got their legs hanging off the edge. Wow. The fact that they're unmarried as well was quite boundary pushing mm. at the time. And it's also... When Marion tears up her, her little sums for returning the money and flushes them in the toilet. First flushing yes. toilet on a film. Yeah. So really? That's the first <laughs> note I wrote about this. First film to show a flushing toilet. There's also a promo that Hitch does where he's in the bathroom and he's saying, you know, this is where the murder took place and here's where some evidence was found and he lifts the toilet seat and puts it down, but you don't see the toilet properly and it yeah. doesn't flush. He's teasing the toilet even in his promo. <laughs> you got paid to see the real thing. Yeah. <laughs> Just going back to Anthony Perkins, it's quite sort of a big risk for him at the time because he was quite a quite heartthrob prior to uh, Psycho. Mm. But the I'm not sure whether it was actually ever confirmed, but I think he's was homosexual um, and certainly yeah. playing. Norman Bates changed the public perception of him, so he got a lot less work than perhaps he would have yeah. had he not taken the gamble on a, a role like this one. Yeah, there's obviously a lot of uh, a lot of gender stuff in this as well that must have been playing on mm-hmm. his mind. You know, cross dressing, mm-hmm. uh, the whole Oedipal thing with mother. Yeah, I think it it would have been a, a huge thing for him. I mean, I hope that he enjoyed his legacy in the Psycho sequels, which are all kind of enjoyable they're not they're not psycho but they're not bad i've only seen four to my knowledge but arrow video announced a new box set uh the day after i watched this so i may buy that yeah i haven't seen any of the updated ones or remakes or or sequels or whatever you want to call it none of them those ones are sequels yeah they're direct sequels okay no Mm. i've not seen any of them but i mean his it's his legacy is is that character now isn't it his performance um yeah as that character and that it's that face at the end that appears in all the lists of famous serial killers on screen and stuff like that. It's that mm. last, it's, it's got to be the last sort of five seconds of the movie, isn't it? It is the most famous image from the movie, which is why it's quite striking when Marion's in the car hearing voices in her head. She smiles at the camera in a very similar way. Mm. Who's the real psycho? Do you think when Marion's hearing those voices that those are real conversations or are those her imagining what the conversations might be? I read it as her imagining what the conversations might be. Both she and Norman imagine what distant voices of authority, how how they would be oppressed by them and and that's kind of what they're both railing against. Because obviously the stuff Mother says, she's not saying either, right? It's just stuff that's in his head that he, he imagines she might say. So I think that that's the same thing that's happening with her. She's just kind of uh, running through all the scenarios, as you do when you're feeling guilty about something. You know, you run through all the different 
possible things mm-hmm. that could happen. Oh, you, you know, your head runs away with it, doesn't it? Yeah. How do we all feel about taxidermy? <laughs> what, in real life? It's weird, isn't it? I'm pro-taxidermy. <laughs> I, don't, I don't like it. If you went into a room in the middle of nowhere with a, with a guy who was being quite uh, hospitable and and giving you milk in a sandwich, and then you go into a room full of stuffed animals, I'd be like, oh, I think I'll let the gas on. Have you ever seen the behind-the-scenes thing of Anne Hesch on Gus Van Sant's Psycho remake, where it's like a demonstration of how she and, and Vince Vaughn and Gus Van Sant didn't really understand Psycho, but it's mm. her in like rehearsals going, look at all these stuffed animals, you motherfucker. Hey, you psycho motherfucker, I'm getting out of here. Just like screaming. <laughs> so weird. It's just horrible. If you've ever seen that, by the way, Vince Vaughn is horrible in it. And yeah. like, they say it's a shot for shot remake, but it somehow looks cheap and, and shit. Why do that anyway? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what the value is if you're not going to put your own stamp on it. It's just the, stu- the studio wanting to make more money again, isn't it? That's all. They're just trying to get a mm. cash injection. Like they always do with fucking everything. Well, he. he... He uh, he won an Oscar, didn't he, for uh, Goodwill Hunting, best film or director, mm. I forget which. And they were like, "What do you want to do next?" He was like, "I want to remake Psycho, shot for shot." And they were like, uh, "Okay, if that's what you want to do." <laughs> why, the f- why the fuck would you? He why would to you do want it, to do that? I, I I just don't understand. Like you know, Psycho, like we said, is is up there all time greats. Should mm. you know you, you you shouldn't mess with them because they don't need to be messed with. That's why they're all time greats. So then. You go somehow you end up so far up your own arse that you think you can beat or equal a great. It's just it's beyond me. For me, the, the best you can do in that situation is equal something that's out there, right? Mm. If you're doing it shot for shot, I don't think you're gonna make it better. Mm. Nah. So that that can't be no. an aspiration. I th- so your yeah. best, the best thing you can aim for is some is equaling something that already exists. So what's the point? It, it isn't as well. So like it's not no. lit well. That whole exchange that takes place uh, in the parlor, you can't see like the taxidermy birds. They're all like out of focus and out of frame and stuff. So it just ruins the whole setup. It's really, really weird. Exactly. On Steven Soderbergh's website, he did a, a cut of the two films together called Psychos, just alternating nice. between the two. Um, right. So that's free to view if anybody's interested. Apparently it's uh, worth a watch. Okay, I watched well. his um, black and white Raiders with no no sound on it. That's fucking brilliant. <laughs> Just that he wanted to study um, like framing and blocking in Spielberg style, so he just put Raiders in black and white, took out all the all the music and everything, uh, and just cut a, a, a silent version of it. And it, yeah, it's on his website, so check well, that out. Not too far away from me here in Japan. There's a town, and in Japan, if you've been here, you'll know that basically every town has its own specialty. So the town I live in is rice crackers. And yeah, each town has has their own. And this town's uh, specialty is taxidermy. <laughs> so when you get off the train at the station, there's quite a lot of taxidermists. Yeah, gathered around the station area. It's hawking their wares, literally. Just like their wares. Like looking at you as you get <laughs> the train. Speaking of hawking, something I found out this week that I didn't know before is uh, I was I was interested in what the birds represent thematically, and what I found out is that bait, obviously his name is Norman Bates. Bait is a falconry term for when 
a bird that's on a perch flaps its wings but doesn't take off, oh. which yeah. kind of suggests like uh, being tethered and and agitated, which Norman uh. is both of those things, right? Mm. And obviously, Marion's surname is Crane. Crane's a, mm. a bird, so uh, she's one of his uh, one of his birds that he's preying on. Birds are also kind of the supernatural connotations, isn't there? Like Edgar Allan Poe's yeah. the raven and um, the crow right. being the guide to the afterlife and, and things of that nature. Yeah. What I will say is that I think taxidermy is due a comeback, but it's going to have to up <laughs> its game. As I've mentioned before, I think animatronics and taxidermy mixed is where the future is at. And yeah. for all you peril pals out there, once I die, if anyone has the expertise to do that to me, I am willing. Yeah, I'd like to like tip a hat or something. Just have my arm tipping a hat. It's like a motion sensor, so whenever anybody comes near you, <laughs> I want to. Yeah, I want a motion sensor in me, and then as long as the person is like below, like one point four meters tall, I'll chase them down the street or something. <laughs> 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 That'd be great. Uh, I can tell you another thing that I learned, which is um, the painting in Norman's parlour that conceals his peephole. Hmm. It's called The Rape of Lucretia, and it's based on an opera. And the, the plot is that Rome has sunk into depravity and all the women are unfaithful, except one, Lucretia. And... Uh, the king's son is goaded into pursuing her and he, he goes to her room at night and rapes her. And uh, when her husband comes home, she, she stabs herself because she, she feels she'll never be clean again. And obviously what Norman's peering on is Marion's efforts to get clean after the guilt of, of her robbery. And, you know, you can see that she's starting to enjoy the shower and stuff. And then obviously he stabs her. So that's probably not an accident from a fella like Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds like it's nicely tied in there. Do you think um, Norman Bates had previously been institutionalised? Because when Marion brings, she says, put his mum in like a home or whatever, some place, he starts getting a bit shirty about it saying it's in institution, mean institution. Mm. It's, you know, maybe not just hit upon a nerve as in like he's worried about putting his mum in there or whether he's actually been in one of those places himself. I think maybe she was, and uh, like it was, it was known that she had a screw loose, uh, and he didn't didn't like. He's quite defensive of her, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, he kept her body around. Imagine the whiff from a ten-year-old corpse. Can't Decaying, be good. Well, yeah. he uses the taxidermy skills, doesn't he, to preserve her the best he could? Mm. Yeah, but you'd imagine the state of her. There must be. After a while, though, they stop smelling, don't they? It's it's. There's a certain so, uh, period where. Where like the bodily fluids all leak out of you, and that's a stinky bit. But after that, it's like beef jerky. <laughs> but you, you know, he definitely he definitely treated it because there's like a sheen, and it it does mention it. And so mm. it's, it's like what they did with mummies. Mummies don't smell either. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. Arnold Bosley certainly doesn't smell. Well, he mm. does. He smells of fragrant oils. <laughs> <laughs> okay, should we move on to favourite scenes? Uh, I'll go first quickly, as uh, we've already sort of briefly touched upon it. Is is the scene with uh, Marion driving out of town, and then she's um, imagining all the conversations. Her face gradually sort of changes 
into a smile as she sort of or com, sort of convinces herself that she sort of smokes smugly grins at the as it's smirking almost um as as she reaches the end of that sequence and the end of the conversations and I just love that mix of the her just sat there and her facial expressions the conversations going on and then the music as well the score behind it and I just think that was a really really interesting sequence for me it's great usually it's not done as well as that and I don't think it's ever been as done as well as that to be honest I forgot completely forgot about the scene you often hear about things where you see scenes in movies where they have a similar thing they're reflecting on what people might say and then there's you know pictures may come in of people's faces shouting at them and stuff like that but I think that's another reason why it's it can't be bested in in so many aspects yeah once you've seen the film more than once you can't watch that without thinking about the ending well, have it's a reflection yeah yeah I think that one passed me by because it was my first watch <laughs> yeah 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 let's go countertacular the stabbing the murder scene um it's just incredible. The shower scene. Yeah, especially after she tears down the curtain and slumps to the floor and it, her <laughs> completely still face, the camera stays on her for a while, then it moves into her room to look at the money again and then through her window to look at the house. It's uh, quite, a, quite a scene. Mm. Incredible yeah. piece of filmmaking. Yeah. It's the way she doesn't expire immediately either, does she? She's sort of trying to cling on and she's at yeah, the outstretched yeah. hand and then she's going, you think, is she is she gonna go and then if you don't know, you think maybe she's just clinging to life just about, but then obviously she goes over the side of the bathtub and that's it and it's you see her face mushed onto the floor and, and it's just and the sound yeah. of her face hitting the floor as well. Yeah. A lot a lot of sound in that scene. Obviously, like I said earlier, you don't really see anything in the attack, but there's a lot of uh, tearing flesh sounds. That, uh, yeah, that, that's what gets you. Nearly ran foul of the senses that scene, didn't it? Because the, when they were first oh. shown it, they were convinced that you could see the knife penetrating flesh and full nudity. Right. And uh, right. he, he didn't I change a frame, thing. Hitchcock. He said, just, just watch that scene in isolation again and pay attention to the music. And apparently the sensor is like, oh, I see. <laughs> yeah, wow. I watched him on um, a show. I think it was, uh, I watched a couple of videos or interviews of him um, talking about the film. And he was on the Dick Cavett show and he was saying that exact same thing. He was like, what, watch it very carefully. And this was like in the mm. 70s. And he says, he, there was not, the knife didn't touch a body once. And he goes, they even had like a, a, a dummy made up with loads of tubes of blood. So every time you'd, You'd hit it with a knife; the the blood would explode. And he goes, "We never, we never use it. We never needed to use it." Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons Hitch wanted to shoot in black and white was uh, um, so that he could show a lot of blood without it being red. So. Uh-huh. There's a reason why that film has been parodied and mm. homaged and dissected over the years. It's it's one of the most iconic scenes in film history. I mean, even if you haven't seen Psycho, you'd know the shower scene. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And what was your favourite scene then? And what say I? I say the Abregast murder was my favourite. Oh, you Ooh. son of a bitch. That's <laughs> <laughs> let, me, let me change that. My favourite scene <laughs> is... Okay. Uh... <laughs> I knew it was going to be I, yours, which is why I didn't say it. <laughs> yeah. 
there's just something about it. The, the, I mean, the first one's great, but the second one, it just feels a little bit more frantic. Mm. And I don't know, it just happened so fast. It made me, yeah. uh, it, was a, it was actually a real jump scare. That impossible dance down the stairs. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if the footage at first where, where mother runs out is, is mm. sped up, but it just seems something mm. a little bit unearthly about it. Another sort of red herring. You think he's going to be the guy to to mm. catch mother and bring bring everything to a head, but no, he he's gone within yeah. what about five ten minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's dispatched yeah. with. <laughs> he, he's the dad in panic room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's he's the um, the sheriff in misery as well. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. He's um, the, the caretaker in the shining. shining. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, why do you like that scene? similar reason to to yourself i think it's um hitchcock's one of his many nicknames was the master of suspense and from the moment arbogast enters the bates motel you just you're waiting for it aren't you and Mm -hmm. it slowly leaks it out He, he looks in the kitchen or the parlor whatever it is and he slowly creeps upstairs but then it comes sooner than you think it will the attack yeah is the brilliant part about it the camera cranes up to this brilliant sort of slightly angled view down the stairs and she's just out, just nails him in the chest and just backwards down yeah. the stairs. A great little stunt of the guy just absolutely smashing himself into the floor and then, yeah, yeah. just mounts him to, to get a few more stabs and it's just it's genuinely shocking because, like, like you say, the shower scene is absolutely iconic and you kind of know it before you see the real thing. But that yeah. Arbogast murder is, um, yeah, just, it's, I think it's something else. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. Some people might consider this a little bit on the nose, but the lighting of, of his uh, entrance into the motel as well, he's always, like, literally in the dark, as his character is, as to what he's in for and what's going oh, okay. on. Same yeah. thing happens when um, Marion's sister and Loomis show up. They're almost always in the dark, but, like, Norman's always lit. He's very well lit. He, he, he thought he knows what's going on. Yeah. There's so much of that throughout. Even like the the power dynamics are shown through the through the height of the camera. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's it, it's amazing. The scene in the parlor as well. That's another favorite because the power dynamic in that shifts just by him moving in his chair. Like he'll relax yeah. back in his chair and he'll kind of fondle the um, the birds behind him. But then when when he's agitated, when she's goading him, he, he moves forward. And then there's that bit where it switches to his side profile when he's really angry at her. And then is it an owl or a hawk or something in the corner behind him? Is right in the frame with him. And it's all very sinister. Mm. Great stuff like that. Shall we move on to favourite lines? Oh, yeah. we got a great one. <laughs> okay. Well, that being the case, so Countertacular, like... let's have yours first. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. I'm back to the hardware store when Marion's sister comes to speak to Loomis. Hmm. He wants to be alone, so he says to his boy behind the till, he says, uh, run out and get yourself some lunch. And the kid's like, oh, that's okay, I brought some lunch with me. And he looks at him again like, and he goes, run out and eat it. <laughs> <laughs> get the fuck out. Read between the lines, man. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> and Adam? Simply... Oh, I'll lick the stamps. 
<laughs> right at the start, she says that. I was like, yeah. oh, ho, ho, ho. <laughs> you lick the stamps the from you. Oh, 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 oh. Slide whistle went. <laughs> and Ben? My favourite line comes from when Norman is trying to persuade Mother to hide out in the basement in the fruit cellar. <laughs> and she says, you think I'm fruity, huh? <laughs> Gaz, you're the resident psychology expert. Do you know about the theory Freud's uh, superego, ego and id as the three levels of the Bates house? And uh, yeah. symbolically, Norman picks up Mother and takes her down from the superego down into the id. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's quite interesting, yeah. Might be a bit of a reach, but I like it. Yeah, I think Hitchcock was only mildly interested in um, psychoanalysis. I think uh, he, he tried, I forget which film it was, he, tr- he tried to make a film specifically about it and he had quite a bad experience. So I think it turned him off the practice in general because his yeah. film didn't work. I forget which one it was. But, well, they do uh, sometimes yeah, call this the first like psychological thriller, don't they? So. Mm. Yeah. I call it a stabathon. Definitely more of a slasher, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. he famously said he likes to play his audiences like a piano. So perhaps he's more of a musician than a psychologist. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. Oh, it's me, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I didn't really write any lines down. The only one that, that I've written down is um, from the final monologue, Norman as mother yeah. to the camera. And the fly lands yeah. on him, and he just says, mm. "I'm not even going to swat that fly. They'll see, they'll see, and they'll say why she wouldn't even harm a fly." And then the skull <laughs> appears on his face for a brief second. That is so good. And then it cuts straight to the car being pulled up, <laughs> like with da da yeah. the end. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. In Psycho, Norman Bates bides his time at his motel waiting for unsuspecting travellers to down tools for the night in one of his 12 empty cabins. Once our erstwhile heroine, Maureen Crane, arrives, the Norman half of his personality makes his guests comfortable, perhaps by sitting down to an evening meal with them. But unbeknownst to the blonde bombshell, Norman has another half of his psyche, Norma Bates, his mother. Once they're settled, Mother sets upon the motel victims using her preferred method of violently stabbing her victims to death, which leaves Norman to perform the cleanup operation, mopping up blood, moving the body, and disposing of their belongings. But what does the panel think of this method? Well, I'd say the tar pit is probably the best part of it. It's uh, a good hidey place. He must confess to where the car is for them to find it, I think. He does. Yeah, that's mentioned at the end. Yeah. So where he's kind of comes undone is Mother's got no patience. Soon as Marion's sister's in the house, she's like, you know, we need to stab her. <laughs> Get her stabbed. Get her stabbed. <laughs> do, do, you, do you see that as a plan? Or I, I feel like... That Norman has absolutely zero control over when Mother pops out? No, no, Mother has no plan at all. Yeah, Mother's, that's what I'm saying. Mother's a creature of instinct. She's got no patience, whereas Norman 
his plan to cover up Mother's tracks, I, I feel, is quite good. Right. He... Oh, no, he's he's a shit liar. When Arbogast comes in, I think he's got... He, you think he's got this, nailed this, because he's quite chilled. And then the second he sort of raises a suspicion and Arbogast puts him into under scrutiny, he just goes, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing her now. Yeah, but her hair was wet, so, yeah. And it's like... Fucking yeah. <laughs> he, th- he yeah. thinks he's in charge until he gets caught out quite easily, doesn't he? Yeah, he's like a house of cards. He just collapses straight away. But, you know, Arbogast is a skilled interrogator, I think, but, as no, well. No, but all he's doing yeah. is going around all the motels going, have you seen her? Have you seen her? Have you seen her? And I've written Arbogast, shit P.I., Norman Bates, <laughs> shit liar. <laughs> he says that, but he knows when he gets there, it's the one that's off the highway, it's the one that's empty. He knows there's something off about the place. He's got a gut feeling no, but for if, it. And he picks up on every little tick. I'd say if Norman Bates had been a convincing liar, like a lot of psychopaths are, he could have got away with it because Arbogast is just using a scattergun tactic if private investigators just is just going around everywhere. But as, as soon as he picks up a scent, though, he goes for it like a bloodhound. And that's what unsettles Norman. Yeah, but he, but he's he's not he's going. Oh, I think I think something's off. I'm just going to go and speak to the old lady. So unless it, unless this ruins your plan, and and don't tell me if it does. But if this doesn't ruin your plan, how would you answer the question of has this woman been here? No. <laughs> but then that's what he says. So how are you better? <laughs> because he 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 he, uh, he goes like, oh, can I see your book? And he's like, oh, no, you can't see that. GDPR. Yeah. But he he starts saying stuff about like doing the laundry, but then he gets caught. He goes back and he says something different about it, and he's under no pressure. He just sort of stumbles over his own story, and eventually he unravels himself. I think instinctively his his first thing to say is, yeah, I've not seen her, because if he says, yeah, I've seen her, then he's in for a load more questions. But then he gets caught out because he doesn't know that the guy's got a sample of her handwriting. I don't think it's so much that he's a bad liar as, as much as he couldn't possibly know what Arbogast knew. No, but it's, it's not just that, though, is it? He, he stumbles over loads of things. He could he could cover that up quite easily. He could have said, oh, I can't remember exact details of it now because I watched it quite a few days, a couple of days ago now. But it's like, I was like, why are you fucking doing that? Why are you saying that? You don't need to say it. He said enough to begin with. There's almost a point where he's like a, a split second away, Norman, from saying, does, does that sound plausible? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's dominoes, isn't it? You can see he's tripping himself up with yeah. his lies. And the more he does that, the more he starts to feel anxious. I think it's really well played. Hmm. But how much agency do you think he had in terms of the planning? I'd, on the murder side, he, it feels like he has no agency. Yeah, that's not even him, is it? Yeah. Hmm. And then on the cleanup side, he's just trying to protect. So with that in mind, I think for his cleanup job, the swamp's a good idea, like you say. But everything else, I don't. I think he had very little agency. So he gets four florets mm. of good old country broccoli. Mm. Good old cubby broccoli. That's <laughs> quite a low amount of broccoli in the grand scheme of Isn't it? broccoli. It's barely enough for a meal, Gaz, if you don't mm. mind me saying so. I'd certainly go hungry. I'd, I'd echo that. Um, but I just add that uh, the the motel is kind of an ideal location, not perfect. Um, mm. But yeah, the fact that it's on sort of a, a formerly busy now, uh, very quiet road, 
in the dark, no no street lighting. When he when he quote unquote forgets to put the lights on, it's basically right. shrouded in darkness. Yeah. So from that aspect, I think it I think it's quite decent. But I might have a better location in my plan. Oh. Oh, there we go. <laughs> That'll keep him hooked. That'll keep him hooked. <laughs> Just before we move on to the competition style round, we would like to thank you very much for listening to the show so far. Do remember, if you like what you hear each week, please subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts if you're on there. It's the best platform to help us grow the podcast, and you Peril Pals play an important part in that process. If you aren't on Apple, rate us on your provider of choice and follow us on socials at DiabolicalPod, now including Chinese spyware network TikTok. <laughs> I'd just like to officially say ni hao to our, uh, to our new overlords. But you already knew that, didn't you, China? You knew exactly what was up. <laughs> And now we come to the part of the show where the panel of peril competes for precious peril points on the perilous leaderboard. Each member gets one vote, which will equal one point on the board. But do remember you cannot vote for yourself. Our task this week is to conjure the perfect setting to enable Norman slash Mother to murder without fear of capture. So, let's do this! First on the docket... We shall have Adam, please. Norman is a man divided. A constant battle between himself and his mother. Who decides what they're having for their tea tonight? Which colour socks are they wearing in the morning? How are they going to keep a roof over their heads? Norman, under his mother's direction, creates a fictional cookie company called Bates's Old Timey Chewy Cookies. He spreads the word about the company, claiming his mother, Norma Bates, is the founder and the guardian of a highly coveted secret recipe for irresistible cookies. Norman makes it known that anyone interested in starting a franchise must travel to the Bates Motel for their two-day company introduction to collect the franchise materials, cookie-making cart, and learn the secret recipe. Most local folk, knowing that Norman has become eccentric and somewhat of a recluse since the passing of his mother, take this turn of events as a harmless way of Norman paying tribute to his mother and possibly a way of propping up his financial situation now the motel is seeing less business. They also agree his cookies are delicious due to Norman having sold the cookies to the local populace for a number of months via a local store who collect once a week. Norman and his mother, however, don't take kindly to all visitors. Norman is quick to genuinely greet gentlemen or groups who come calling that he can't handle. They are the lucky ones who will be offered a full franchise and learn the secret recipe for Mother Bates's fabulous cookies, which is written on a sandstone headstone in the fruit cellar. The guy is clearly a little odd, but ultimately harmless, think the successful candidates. Norman and his mother don't always agree, and some of them are turned down, with the excuse that all this year's allocation of franchises has gone. The gents that are successful applicants, however, 
his mother takes a shine to. He obviously becomes furious. As his mother swoons over them, it sparks Norman's violent response. Norman, only having eyes for the fairer sex, is more than happy to welcome the latest pretty young thing into his home, much to the disappointment of his mother, who makes it very clear how she feels about them in the only way she knows possible. This constant tug of love between the two elements of his psyche continue result in a stalemate, with each fulfilling their murderous desires in almost equal measure, whilst also making a tidy profit on the side. Should any investigator come a-calling, private or law enforcement, asking about the disappearance of an individual, Norman can confidently state he turns many people away each year. He can't remember them all, but also there are many successful and leave with a franchise to seek their fortune across America, having paid for the franchise in full. They begin to wonder, with the growing popularity of their cookie recipe and carts, Maybe it'll soon be time to branch out into Bates's family special sausages. Ooh. Ooh, is that a League of Gentlemen crossover? Well, the last bit was it's like alluding to maybe they'll make some special stuff. But the, yeah. the cookies are genuine bona fide cookies. How are they disposing of the bodies in this plan? Anyway, maybe just chuck them back in the swamp there and stuff like that. I don't know. It's a good idea. Just the same. Basically, the premise was the same, but it was just to try and detract the attention from them. But with sweet treats and franchising. Yeah, that's it. And they would have more people coming there, but then they'd, they'd be able to say, yeah, we've had loads of people staying here, but some people we've told to bugger off, some people we've given them. And they'll catch up with some of these people and go, did you notice anything funny about Norman Bates? Well, not. Well, he's a bit odd, but he's not a killer or anything like that. And so... Uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of people to say he's he's a bit peculiar, but he's not a murderer, basically. And it was just trying to cover that. And then I couldn't reconcile the two parts of his psyche, either one getting the better of the other, because ultimately in the film, it's the it's them getting caught is what breaks that mental boundary, isn't it? And when, when one comes over the other, isn't it? His mother wins, essentially. So a large number of people who go to the Bates Motel mm-hmm. are still murdered. He's still able to, to carry out his murders, yeah? I didn't specify the number. So, but anyway, what I was going to say is, let's imagine yeah. I'm investigating Sweeney Todd mm-hmm. and I go to Sweeney Todd's barbershop and I, I say, mm-hmm. you know, um, seven people in the last uh, three years have been to your barbershop and then never been seen again. And Sweeney Todd goes, cut a lot of people's hair. And I just go, yeah. all right, and I'll yeah. drop that lead. Yeah, how yeah, okay. how many people? Yeah, how many cookies? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you see that? Maybe. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm not sure if I buy that. The the number of people getting turned down for this franchise would put me off the fact that any number of no, there's more people than, that are successful two or three well. people. There's people. That yeah, are success- still, there's people that are successful. There's people I, I, that I accept away. that. I accept that. There's still people that stay that at the fully. motel, and there's local people yeah. as well. So there's Got there's you. enough. There's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally but, accept that. But what I'm refuting is. That if yeah. more than three people went there and mm. then disappeared, I'd still think that was a pattern worth following, mm. regardless of how many people didn't die going there. But I bet there's I, lots of people I, that go I, to... In 1981, no one died. In 1982, <laughs> no one died. <laughs> but I'd say there's probably people that visit the same restaurant a lot, and maybe there's a lot of them get killed every year. 
So it doesn't necessarily mean yeah. the restaurant murdered them. But and if they will go into the restaurant and, and died there, I would still probably follow up that lead is what there's I'm thinking. No, there's, but there's no proof that they died there. That's the thing. There's lots of people that did go there and they weren't murdered. So that's the cover oh, story, yeah, you see. I see. He did say that there's lots of people who would who would act as an, almost like an alibi. That's why I said there's there's people that come and go, and there's lots of people that maybe that are vulnerable or stuff, but they they get through it. And then there's lots of there, there's some people that don't because either it, I don't know how many I'm, I'd say maybe two or something. So one will spark Norman into a murderous rage, and the other and maybe another one will spark his mother into killing him. So it's like a tit for tat sort of. My only issue with it is I don't think Norman has the wherewithal to enforce the franchise. Once someone gets a franchise, they're going to be sharing that recipe with every Tom, Dick and Harry. <laughs> yeah, well, they, buy the fran- they buy the franchise and they buy the recipe. So Yeah, and then they, just, then they give it out so no one goes to, Norm- to the Bates Motel anymore because this guy's just dishing out recipes. Sub-franchise. Oh, he's got a good lawyer. He's got a good lawyer, though. It's all contractual. You know, it's all contractual. So they sign, oh, they sign wow. it. It's all yeah. contractual. Yeah, but if that's what a franchise is, they don't just don't, just don't go, just give me 100 quid and you can have this. It's a contract, isn't it? It's like any franchise. So You said that he lets people know, he makes them aware that the recipe is written on a headstone in the fruit cellar. So I think at least someone's breaking into that fruit cellar and having a look at it. No, it's in the house, isn't it? So they got to break into the house to get to the fruit cellar. Arbogas just walks in. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Let's have <laughs> Countertacular next, please. Norman Bates is stuffed. Mother has killed again, and soon others will be arriving at the motel, poking their beaks into his business. Worse still, it seems Mother has kept some of Marion Crane's clothes. Sure enough, a fellow named Arbogast has arrived at the motel asking questions. But before Norman could think, Mother has done him in too. On the other hand, perhaps Arbogast's arrival and demise was a gift. Perhaps it is not Norman who is stuffed, but Arbogast. Norman, as you know, is interested in taxidermy and swiftly sets his experienced hand to expertly stuffing Arbogast's still fresh corpse. Once the messy work is over, he slips into something more comfortable, Marion Crane's knickers. Over the next few hours, Norman makes sure Arbogast is seen around town with a handsome woman who witnesses could later neither definitively confirm nor deny was Marion Crane. They dine together at a nearby Tex-Mex restaurant, reputed to be a front for a homosexual knocking shop. (laughs) The owner seems reluctant to share details of his clientele, but he's able to confirm a table was booked in the name of Marie Samuels, the same pseudonym you'll remember which Marion used to book into the Bates Motel. 
A pair of Greyhound bus tickets are purchased under the same name. When Crane's sister arrives at the motel with Loomis in tow, Norman helpfully advises them that Arbogus has returned to the motel earlier that evening, claiming to have forgotten his wallet and had also asked for directions to the restaurant and the coach station. With the pair now fully distracted by this lead, Norman has perfected the setup he will use in future to go about his business of killing girls uninterrupted, namely that he will stuff anyone who comes looking for them before dressing as his victims and taking his taxidermy out on dates to places where people will ask few questions. So your weekend at Burnie'sing, <laughs> more or less. <laughs> All right. So I yeah. thought it was a great plan. I just one question was: I wonder why you did it as Captain Jack Sparrow. It was uh, Michael Caine. <laughs> I did it much better earlier, but I, I lost it somewhere in talking as myself. I was going to say, why why were you doing it as Vic Creeb's version of Melvin Bragg? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, Melvin Bragg. Yeah. Pick arsehole. Pick arsehole. <laughs> what I might do is I might I might record it again in my proper Hitch voice. No, it sounded okay. I'm only I'm just teasing you. I'm just teasing. You. No, I, I do do a better one now. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode. The Diabolical Podcast. So, Norman's marrying, basically. He's dressing up and marrying. Well, for that particular murder, yeah. yeah. And he's managed to taxidermy Arbogast in like three hours and a bit. Yeah, give or take. <laughs> Did it, as that was a bit of an ask. Big ice cream scoop. Well, he's, he's well practised, isn't he? He's well in, in birds and, and small mammals and things like that, but not in people. He's done his mother. He did his mum, yeah. Well... Sort of oh, more ways than one, probably. Ooh. Yeah, mother is a boy's best friend after all. That's true. Yeah, she was. She was obviously done several years prior, so her mummification has taken a long time. Arbogast's yeah. not going to be like that within a few hours. I just wonder how long embalming somebody would take. Well, he's not embalming, is he? He's not a funeral yeah. director. I, I believe in Weekend at Bernie's, they didn't even bother doing any taxidermy. Didn't do just anything straight out on the yeah. out on the streets. Yeah. Isn't he discolouring? <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is why Norman, as I say, he does perform taxidermy, and yeah, takes him takes him a few hours with his skilled hand, practiced how, hand. How, how does he disguise the dead eyes? They're a dead giveaway. It's probably sunglasses, but as I say, he makes a point of going to a place <laughs> that he knows people. They don't want to talk about who they've seen and what they've seen too much. Under pressure from Loomis, they'll say. Yeah, I don't really like talking about my clientele, but as as you are clearly in distress and this is a serious situation, I can say yes. I did see a man fitting that description in here and he was with a rather handsome woman. And they'll say, was it this woman? And they'll say, oh, I don't know. We weren't paying them much attention. We don't pay much attention to our clients in here. They come here because they know it's a private place where they can come and... Uh, Get up Cut to whatever some they ribs want. and some uh, buggery, some sodomy, hanky panky. Ribs yeah. and buggery is that what the place is called? <laughs> ribs and sodomy. <laughs> it's called Adam and Steve's rib. <laughs> I just got one thing that I wrote down, surmising your plan weekend at Bernie's. But 
instead of the word at, I've done the symbol at, and then I thought, oh my nice. God, you could remake this for the internet age. Yeah, oh shit. What that means, yeah. I don't know, but you've got your title. That's half the battle. Dead on a webcam. <laughs> it's a whole Zoom call, but they use like... Um, a filter. You know, like a, a kitty face. Yeah, filter. And they pretend yeah. that... <laughs> <laughs> that fucking lawyer. Oh my God. We still laugh about that now. <laughs> Uh, I'm not a cat, Your Honor. (laughs) 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 Any further cues? I can see T-Dog's itching. He's he's angry because I dared to question his plan. I was going to say, I've I've just had a quick look at taxidermy, um, and to do just a D ahead is two to three hours minimum. For for a lesser skilled person than... Than uh, Norman Bates, clearly. Yeah, maybe, maybe. He's the the Donald Trump of taxidermy. Does it better than anybody else? Yeah. <laughs> Many are saying this. <laughs> well, I tell you what. Let's solve this once and for all, Craig. For the next episode, sorry, Countertacular, you love me. For the next episode, you get a body, yeah. and we'll just we'll record you taxidermy. <laughs> Well, we only record for two hours, so that's bullshit. You got TikTok, though, wouldn't it? Also, I haven't been practicing on birds and dogs and and mother for years, so it's hardly a fair comparison. Yeah, fair enough. Righto, let's move on to Ben's plan. Norman is disturbed. Disturbed by the lack of guests stopping by the Bates Motel, that is. That blasted new road. But as they say, nothing in this world is certain except for death and taxes. He knows that the times are a-changing, and being a somewhat morbid fellow and an accomplished taxidermist, he knows exactly what to do. He sets about converting eight of the twelve cabins. He removes the furniture and decorations, save for the bed and a side table. He then paints the walls a drab colour and boards up the windows. He removes the beds from the remaining four rooms and uses the furniture he removed from the other rooms to make comfortable parlours. Next, he repaints the sign out front and stands back to admire his handiwork. Content with the job well done, Norman knows there is one final task before he can open for business. He needs mother's approval. He runs to the house to fetch her. She casts a discerning eye over one of the parlours. We need more stuffed birds, you bird-brained little sinner! And lots of them. Yes, that will show the families of the deceased that we're animal lovers. The type of people that wouldn't harm a fly. And add a few more lace doilies to class up the place. Put them wherever anything comes into contact with anything else. I want everything separated by a thin layer of crocheted lace or it will be your hide. We're not beggars, do you hear me, boy? She strides into another of the cabins. This one only has a bed and a side table. Ah, so this is where the bodies will go, is it? What are you planning to do with the bathroom? I I thought I'd just keep the door closed, Mother. Stupid boy! What a waste of perfectly good space. No, put locks on the outside and we can use it to store even more bodies, the ones we don't want folk to know about. While they're awaiting a one-way trip to the swamp, that is. Norman diligently makes the adjustments Mother requested and soon the Bates funeral parlour is officially open. Norman now has a recession-proof business and a bona fide excuse for all the dead bodies he amasses through his cheeky little adventures. Wouldn't 
the coroner be bringing bodies to a funeral parlor, though? Uh, they would, but there's a lot of widows that come to funeral parlors, and that is where the murderous desires would be uh, satisfied. The lone mourners, my friend. Easy pickings. Mm-hmm. What about when people go, why, you know, there's, there's plenty of people are dying, legit dying, but why are all the widows disappearing as well? <laughs> well, they'd be dying of grief, don't they? <laughs> yep, but I imagine they would die of grief. <laughs> dying of grief and their bodies are disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a good lord taking them up to the to be with their to be with their former partner. No paperwork needed; they're just gone. <laughs> oh, the lord works in mysterious ways. <laughs> he could just find. He could just maybe find the widow's like collapsed on the road outside, and be like, "Oh no, let's get her into the funeral home." Oh, she died. I'm just trying to help her. <laughs> By the way, why does he convert eight out of twelve cabins? Is he dealing with uh, eight funerals at a time? Well, you know, it's for appearances, isn't it? So he wants the parlors, so so he can show people who come and say, "Look, we've got we've got these little waiting room for the families," and then he sits in he sits in the uh, the, the lone widow. He could have a little sideline for necrophiliacs as well, couldn't he? <laughs> now you mention it, yes, he could. Nice little add on. Upsell and that will that. probably end up becoming his main business. <laughs> what I thought you were going to do, because you were talking about the taxidermy as well, is I thought you were going to turn the motel into a sort of museum of like preserved bodies. No, because you know you need to treat the corpse, don't you? Yeah, wine it, dine it. Mm. <laughs> 69 it. <laughs> You might want to re-record your uh, spoiler warning, Gaz, to include necrophilia. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of trigger. Triggering Surely stuff. people are expecting it by now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I would say on reflection, honestly speaking, it probably suffers from the issue that Turner's does, that there could be a, a pattern traced back to it. Yeah. But because I defended Turner's, I will also defend mine. Yeah, I, I, shall, I shall defend you. <laughs> See, I give you that necrophiliacs holiday, but pontins, necrophiliacs pontins. Yeah. Everybody every <laughs> wants to be there. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Finally. Here we go. I shall reveal my plan. Oh, my God. It's hideous. <laughs> <laughs> Is it supposed to have three lumps on it? <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to talk to you today about a very large vehicle named the cruise liner, as I'm proposing to you that Norman sets up shop aboard a cruise liner, kids. Think about it. (laughs) He could take a job as a barman and inveigle himself into people's life stories, or he could become a lounge crooner, singing such classics as Mama Told Me Not To Come, Mama Didn't Lie, (laughs) Mother Like Mine, and Agadu. In between songs, Norman could have onstage chats with audience members in order to... Well, you get the idea. Even the job of cabin boy would allow Norman access to potential victims as he could snack into said cabins at the dead of night using a skeleton key and, well, you get the idea. Now, forgive me if I'm wrong, but Psycho is not in a shared universe with Agatha Christie's Poirot yet! 
although I have copyrighted this idea, so be warned, Hollywood hacks. <laughs> My point being that there is no investigative presence aboard the vessel to solve the mystery of the disappearing bints. And that's the title I've copyrighted, <laughs> so be warned, Hollywood scribblers. Once said ladies have been parted from their mortal souls, Norman slash mother can simply hoik the remains over the starboard side of our cruise liner, along with any cleaning materials. The vessel, being a capitalist venture, is only concerned with the missing cleaning supplies and the cost of replacing them. Human life be damned. Okay. Well, that rings true. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. I've fallen off and died on many cruise liners, and nobody nobody <laughs> looked for me. Nope. Um, Nobody's been nope. the least bit interested. <laughs> yeah. Um, on a serious note, <laughs> I think we all discussed earlier that... Uh, Mother Bates has no patience and that Norman has very little control over her. Hmm. Do we think she's going to stay hidden while he's crooning or tending bar? Or is he just she's going to pop out in front of everyone else and start slashing people up? I think maybe um, that's how he's able to hit the high notes when he's crooning. He like switches back and forth <laughs> between himself and Mother. I guess she would appreciate his choice of songs. Oh yeah, oh, yeah you missed you missed out a good song. Yeah, you missed out. Uh, your mother should know. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> should we sing that at the end? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as Norman catches a glimpse, and don't forget, on cruises, women are very scantily clad. <laughs> oh, very yeah. scantily oh, clad. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. boy. A lot of them you'll recognise wear itsy bitsy, teeny weeny, yellow polka dot <laughs> bikinis. So as soon as Norman sees that, mother's popping out. They're dead. It doesn't matter who's around. Oops, mother's popping out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, pardon. Well, you say that, but mother doesn't pop out until he dresses as mother. He can't kill Marion in the parlour, can he? Because mother's still in the house and he has to go and get her. Mm. See what I mean? But it, it is mother that kills her, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that on the cruise liner, if he did see these scantily clad ladies... He would hear Mother calling to him from his cabin or whatever. Uh, but he'd okay. have to go back to his cabin to become Mother before he could kill anyone. That's a good point. Solid as a rock. Craig, uh, fuck. <laughs> you clever, clever, <laughs> handsome man. Countertacular. Countertacular <laughs> saved you there, guys. Again. He's just got so little respect for you. He won't wearing that moniker. He absolutely hates you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is there definitely no other investigative presence on a cruise liner? They don't um, have like. Uh, there's no laws at sea, mate. International waters. It's famous. It's at all water, is it? Soon as you... Waters, <laughs> soon as you get ten miles away from a from a country, you bloody international waters do yeah. no rules apply. It's like the purge. <laughs> <laughs> You're a crook, Captain Hook. Do you know what? Those plans, diabolical. That's what we had. <laughs> Adam's plan to make a, a cookie franchise from the Bates Motel, which would attract lots and lots of people, only some of whom would be murdered. Countertacular's plan, which was weekend at Symbol Bernie's, involving a Tex-Mex restaurant where nobody would ask any questions. Where nobody knows your name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ben's plan, which turned the Bates Motel into a funeral parlour in order to attract genuine clientele and some widows that they could just scoop in and dispose of. 
and my plan, which involved Norman working on a cruise liner. But there can only be one or two or three or four people who get points on the board. And with that, <laughs> if we could all cast our votes, but not for yourselves, please, saucy babies. Hmm. It's a tricky one this week. Really? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have voted for Adam's Ooh. cookie plan. Because of spreading the wealth amongst people being killed and not killed. Mm-hmm. Ben? I too have voted for Adam Cookie Donor. Ooh. And also I'd like to see Norma Bates on the on the packet of cookies. Like holding a tray <laughs> of baked cookies. Yeah, like Aunt Jemima. Nice with, the, with the skull superimposed <laughs> on his face. <laughs> for some <Yeah>. reason. <laughs> like a hologram. So you turn it, he's his face next to yeah. his skull. Yeah. <laughs> Bringing visionaries. <laughs> And let's have Adam. I have voted for... Where is it? Where is it? Ben! It's one for Ben. Thank you. And finally, let's see who Countertacular has voted for. I've gone for the only plan where I think Norman's guaranteed to find Hot Young Tail, and that is the cruise liner. Ah. Quite a a large endorsement there. Well, (laughs) I shall now reveal the scores. In the lead... With 19 points, remains Countertacular in second place. With 16 points is Adam. In third place, with 15 points, is Ben. And bringing up the rear with 13 points is me. So it's all quite close. Yeah. Yeah. Six points separating top to bottom. Yeah, yeah. And we're going into the last round of Mm -hmm. films. We are. Yeah, yeah, final four. Exciting times. Mm. Going into the ready money round. Who's going to get to name themselves something stupid? (laughs) (laughs) That will do us for another wonderful week. But fear not, we shall return for another set of scintillating schemes next week. Adam will have the pleasure of hosting the podcast with his choice of film. So in the immortal words of Chaka Khan, would you tell me what you want to do? Next week, we shall be going back to Bond and exploring Daniel Craig's first outing in Casino Royale. I was wondering what of Daniel Craig's we were going to be exploring. A few few things ran through my mind there. What could it be? All all I'll say is, gentlemen prefer Bonds. Oh, (laughs) don't they just... Yeah, it's a goodie. Just before we piece the F out, I have a podcast recommendation for our listeners right now of Genrevision, a weekly film club where Drew Deitch and Travis Newton review films by different themes each month, such as Western Month, which covered The White Buffalo, The Quick and the Dead, High Plains Drifter and Rango. I've been listening to Travis and Drew for a couple of years now and John Revision has turned me onto a lot of great films that I've never seen before, so please do head over there and give them a listen. But, in the main, we hope you will join us next week as we discuss Casino Royale. It would be very, very good if you could join us. Until then, remember, everything will be alright in the end, and if it isn't alright then it isn't the end.
Beautiful. Let's all get up and, and dance, dance to a song, a song that, that was a hit, hit before your mother was born. Though she was born a long, long time ago, your mother should know. Your mother should know. Your mother should know. Sing it again. Mama told me not to come. <laughs> Because she said it would mess up the valance on the sofa. The skirt thing round the side of the bed. That's called a valance. Anyone watched Bates Motel, the series? No. Theodore Farmiga. Watched the uh, first couple of seasons. Freddie Highmore was Norman, wasn't he? Freddie Highmore, yeah. I remember it being decent. I nearly got attacked by Norman Bates. Oh, yeah, you didn't tell that story, did you? I was still recording. You go past on uh, on the little Universal Studios kind of giant long golf cart thing that you ride bloody Norman comes down the bloody porch steps doesn't he <laughs> staring at you Ooh. Wow. Jesus quick escape you only just escape on your little golf cart yeah yeah it's really is, cool is it an actor or an animatronic uh, auto, auto erotica no it's an actor and they've got like a perfect replica of the house and yeah wow. the actor comes down apparently he does random things so it's different every time you come out oh, right. so uh, who, is it, who is it is it Andrew, Andrew Garfield who is it? <laughs> I don't know. I was too busy to close my eyes. Yeah. Nice. But he nearly got killed by bloody Vin Diesel as well. Yeah. Bloody Fast yeah. and the Furious lot nearly had us. <laughs> like they Jaws. Are. You on the Jaws one? <laughs> you almost get eaten by Jaws. Oh, Jaws nearly had me. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like an insurance nightmare. <laughs> it's all on the same kind of tour. Oh, is it? Yeah. The studio, yeah. 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 Brilliant. We're all adults here. Well, I'm pretty sure anyway. <laughs> so we all know the sounds that various vehicles can and do make. But here at Diabolical, our demographic skews surprisingly young with a 99% thumbs up rating in the 1-10 to year old bracket. And so on that basis, <laughs> let's just take a moment to listen to some of the sounds various vehicles can and do make. So I'm pretty sure you can hear that. That is uh, a yeah. car. Yep, that's, that's a car. Yeah. You can't see the video, but there are various child's cars coming across the screen. Various child's cars? Yeah, like toys. Ah. This is, uh, of course... A choo-choo. Steam yeah, train. A train. Oh, I thought it was, it was a slide whistle. <laughs> There's five minutes of this, by the way. Next, we have... <laughs> Fire engine. Where is he going with this? Could be any emergency vehicle, really, to be honest, couldn't it? Sounds like an Just ambulance. <laughs> it's a fire engine. The screen oh. is telling me it's a fire engine. So there. They all have slightly different tones, don't they? That one. Start the 18. <laughs> it's BA's least favourite method of travel, the helicopter. First, we had a yellow helicopter. Now we've got a blue one with a red star on it. Mm. Next up, we have quite a tricky one. This truck. It's a kind of truck. HGV or a semi. It's a big red double decker truck. If you're a called a bus. Oh, bus is it? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Turner. Ship. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pull, excuse me. <laughs> this one. 
Travels across water. Bit of a clue there. Hovercraft. <laughs> the duck? <laughs> oh, okay. no, different siren. Polis. Polisia. Yeah, police. Quite different to that car engine siren. I think it was This car's got a little robber in the back giving it a cheeky little grin. Gonna put this video in the show notes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I reckon a lot of this is gonna end up on the cutting room floor. It's fucking riveting stuff. <laughs> I was thinking Again, your plan was gonna have to be pretty boring to be worse than the other two, but you're getting there. <laughs> Congratulations. That's, uh, that's an aeroplane, of course. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the sucker punch. It's coming. Yeah. <laughs> Next. Ding ding. Maybe it's not. Maybe this is it. Oh, bicycle. It's a bicycle. And now there's a bear on a penny farthing. Oh, that's cute. Throwing a top hat and a big jeep. Oh, that's a plan. (laughs) (laughs) Nearly there. A tractor. Come on, get on with it. Tractor. That's a tractor. Nailing these. There's about four left, I think. Looking at the tab. It's a good job I don't have to be working a bit, innit? We just need one more then. Okay. Oh, I don't think you're going to guess this. I don't know. Oh, it's a steam cleaner. Someone's steaming their clothes. That is a rocket. Okay. Separating there. Oh, okay. okay. Oh, that's that's not okay. quite. Oh, yeah, because yeah. at the start, it's like steep, it goes down, doesn't it? Like, it doesn't get better than a rocket, does it? Peak of travel. Pretty interesting. I think you'll agree, Peril King. <laughs> <laughs> right, any questions for Gaz? <laughs> but I don't even want to talk about any of those vehicles. That was just a little bit of fun. A jake, a giggle, a jest, a joke. Uh, Well, you get the idea. 